Hi, everybody. Welcome to another week of Chris's Courses at West Link in our current series, Questions in Genesis, where we're looking at the first foundational book of the Bible to see what it wants us to ask about who God is and who we are as God's people. So we're kind of wrapping up the story today of Abraham and Sarah. Last time, we finally got to the point that we've been waiting for where they have a son. And so we have Isaac, although there's really not much about him uh, throughout the, the story. He's kind of the, really the middle child of, of the patriarchs. Now, there are important things that happen to him or around him. Uh, and one of the, the biggest stories that we talked about a lot last week was God's command in chapter 22 for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? You know, we talked because this is it's a really challenging story, and I think we need to, to take a lot of time to dig into it and think about what what it's trying to say and and what it's not trying to say. You know, it's a story about Abraham being faithful in one sense because he faithfully goes, trusting, as he says, that God will provide. And yet it's also puzzling that Abraham does not faithfully ask God, well, why? Why do you want me to, to kill this child that you've been promising me for, for years? And so again, as we think about that, we think about the idea of God testing us, it's important to know that God does not want you to fail. But there may be times when you need to know that your faith is genuine. Right? God's instructions are not to, to tempt you or test you and trip you up. God is trying to transform you. So God is a God who tests and a God who provides in Genesis. And, and it's easier to think of God as one or the other. But this passage shows us that God is both somehow. And so the story is, is about both the faithfulness of Abraham and about the faithfulness of God. But uh, we've gotten through that. Isaac is still around. And now there's, there's going to be a lot of summarizing as we kind of look at some of these last little stories. So in chapter 23, you get the death of Sarah. Now there is, uh, I've heard it said that maybe this happens because Abraham comes back and tells her what he almost did to Isaac and... <laughs> He just keels over and dies. I don't know, but it's kind of fun to think about. And so this, this whole chapter here, chapter 23, is all about Abraham going through the process of buying a field to bury her in. Right? He won't accept it as a gift. He wants to like fully own this, this property. And it's, it's significant because this burial plot, this, this bit of land that he has here to bury Sarah, that's all that he owns of the promised land. Right? Even in chapter 23, verse 4, he talks about himself as, as a stranger and an immigrant or alien. So it's just a reminder that as long as Abraham has been here, he is still um, an outsider, and he, he maintains that status in a, in a certain way. And so uh, after she's gone, that kind of makes Abraham realize, okay, I've got to think about the future more, and he wants to think about Isaac's future specifically. So I'll, I'll read just the first part of chapter 24. This whole chapter is about finding a wife for Isaac, and it's, it's a great story. It's just, it's really long. So we're just going to look at, read the first part and then kind of summarize the rest. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my country and to my kindred and get a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? 
Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, this to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman's not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So it recognizes once again that Abraham has been very blessed. God has been true uh, to that side of the promise already, but he's got to ensure that the blessing continues. And Abraham is torn, right? He won't, he won't leave this new land, but he can't leave behind the family that's back uh, where he came from. Now, he's very adamant, you heard there at the end, that you can't take Isaac out of the promised land. Whatever happens, Isaac has to stay here. This is the land that, that the Lord has given us. This is where we need to be. But the reason he sends this servant back to his own people is because he doesn't want Isaac marrying into the Canaanites here. Now, if you pay attention, that's just coming from Abraham, right? You know, if you know later stories, there are instructions that Israelites not, um, you know, marry people who have other gods. But that's not present here, right? There's no command from God not to intermarry. This actually seems like it's more Abraham's bias, right? Go to my people, um, and it doesn't even seem necessarily like it's about following the Lord. And yeah, we will see that they seem to acknowledge Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, when he gets there. But you know, when Abraham left, they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping other gods too. So it's not about religious stuff. It it's really is just, I want him, want him to get a wife from my people. So the main character through most of this long chapter is this servant uh, who shows great faith in the Lord. I'll pick up in verse 12, and you can hear the prayer that he offers. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I'm standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say to me, drink and I will will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So later on, when this does work out, right, he finds Rebecca, and she ends up becoming Isaac's wife. He gives credit to God. So he's trusting that God is going to, to take care of him and give him success. And when it happens, he, he credits God with that happening. But I do wonder, you know, you hear that prayer, is, is that the way we should expect God to work? You know, God here's what I want you to do, here's what I think you should do, and here's a direct sign that you can give me so that I know that this is what you want. (laughs) Maybe we do try and pray that way. In my experience, it it often doesn't work out like that. Now, you could argue this is kind of a unique case, you know, with this particular family, but I think it it kind of begs that question. It makes us think of, well, how do we really think that God is going to answer our prayers? You know, we can be bold and honest in our prayer life. We saw Abraham do that, and and I've encouraged that in a lot of what I've taught about, about him and other people of faith. And yet sometimes, you know, uh, God isn't really looking for us to give a game plan. Um, we, we just have to trust that God is going to work things out. So, you know, the test that, that this servant comes up for with is, you know, when I ask somebody for water, it's going to be whoever offers not just to give water to me, but also to all my camels too. So, and that's what Rebecca does. So she's identified as, as the wife because she shows hospitality to a complete stranger. Again, we see this is a big theme that's it's already been a part of the story, 
and coming up here again that people are willing to actually reach outside of their own circles and and serve others. That's what marks her as as the right person. And so the, the servant, God has, has led the servant here. He acknowledges that. But even through all of this, Rebecca still has a choice. You know, it, it, she, his, her family mentions to her at the end, this is around verse 58. They're like, well, will you go with this man, right? She's just, this guy comes out of nowhere and says, hey, uh, I think you're supposed to come back with me and marry this, this guy that you don't know. And, and God told me. You know, that may seem a little crazy, but it's really not that different from what God called Abraham to. And Rebecca has a choice, and, and she says, I will, I will go, you know. And so we have to think about, do we have a choice when it comes to God's will? You know, there are some that would say that, well, if it's what God wants, it's just going to happen, and you have no say in it, um, and God just does what God wants. Sorry. I think what I see in Scripture is it's more dynamic than that, because that's very controlling, that's lording over people, even though, yes, we do call God Lord, uh, we see that God is trying to partner with us always, that God wants us involved in these decisions. And yeah, if if we don't go with where God seems to be leading, we are going to miss out on some things. You know, Rebecca could have stayed with her family. It seems like they were doing pretty well for themselves, and so she would have had uh, a, a decent life, probably, but by going, she becomes part of this this family of faith, and so you know that may be the choice that we have to face sometimes. God is not going to force anything on you, but God is trying to invite you into something bigger, a bigger story, a better story, if we can pay attention to it and and listen for it. You know, we talk a lot this time of year. Right now, it's it's almost Christmas. And again, Mary, I think, is the best example of this, that God comes to her with, you know, the, the, basically the greatest offer of all time. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah, of the Son of God. And still, she is the one who has to say, let it be with me, like you've said. And so, we, God is always looking for us to participate in what God is trying to do through us, because God always wants to be in that sort of partnership. So after this, we get a few more notes uh, about the end of uh, Abraham's life in chapter 25. Now it says here in 25.1 that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, and then it goes on to list uh, other wives that he had and all of their children. So it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of times we kind of forget about that Abraham had all these other wives as well. But I think it's just illustrating the way that Abraham is the father of many nations, right? Not just the people of Israel. We've already seen that with, with Ishmael, uh, traditionally being thought of as, as the father of the of Arabic people. And so here we have all these other uh, families as well that come from him. Now, there's an interesting rabbinic tradition about this uh, first wife that's mentioned, Keturah. Uh, and so there's no real basis for this uh, necessarily in text. You can take it or leave it. But there have some that have looked at these stories and thought creatively about it and thought that possibly Keturah is another name for Hagar. Now, there are a couple reasons why people would think that. Um, Isaac is part of this story, and it mentioned earlier on back in, uh, in tw- chapter 24 that Isaac had come from Be'er Lahar Roy. That is a place, it's the well that Hagar named back in chapter 16. So that's a place that's, that's associated with her. Um, and so what, what people have creatively read into this is that Isaac worked to reconcile them, right? His father just went, went to all this uh, trouble to find a wife for him, and now that Isaac's mother has died, 
he wants to make sure that his father is is not alone either. And so, you know, it again, you can take it or leave it, but it is a beautiful story, right, of reconciliation uh, with with Hagar and even also with his half brother Ishmael, because right after this we get the death of Abraham, and if you look in verse nine. It says that he was buried, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave. This is the same place where, where Sarah had been, been buried. And so it, you wouldn't expect Ishmael to be here, right? I thought he was done. I thought he was out of the story. Well, it doesn't seem like it. And did Isaac have any part in that? I, I don't know. I mean, somebody had to go and tell Ishmael that his father had died. Um, so in some way, it does seem like there's some coming back together of those two. Um, and you know, this, the death of Abraham here, you know, in some ways God has fulfilled all these promises and in some ways there hasn't been much that's actually happened so far. And so it makes me think of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, where it says all of these died in faith without, without having received the promises, but from a distance, they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth for people who speak in this way, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land they left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he's prepared a city for them. So Abraham really dies trusting in this promise that he's not going to see fulfilled, at least not completely. Right? At this point, he has one son, according to the promise, no grandchildren, and he has a burial plot. Uh, that's all he has of the promised land. That's all of, you know, the, the many nations that he's going to, to father. Although, you know, he does have, obviously, many kids, it seems like. So, you know, we can trust that if we really think God is working something through us, it may go on past us, our lives even. Right? We're not going to see the results, even in this life, of every good thing that we do. But if we trust that we are with God and we're doing what God wants, then God is going to keep working in that. Uh, we don't have to see it to trust that God is doing good there. Uh, one of the other last things you see here is Ishmael. Since he has shown up back in the story, we get his genealogy. He's also the father of 12 tribes. And, and so it's this theme that uh, we've mentioned before, and it's going to be very important coming going through the, the next stories with Jacob and Esau, of how Ishmael is not chosen, but he is still blessed. And so, uh, you know, it's important to think about who God chooses and why and what that means for everyone else. So I want to read a little bit from a book called Not in God's Name by a Jewish rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. And so it's a book in some ways about religious violence and looking at, you know, how is religion tied to that and where does tribalism and and these sort of things come into it. And he uses Genesis to, to kind of illustrate some of these tensions and things that humanity always does, but to see how the, even this book is pushing against some of these natural human impulses. Uh, so, he says, God chooses those who cannot do naturally what others take for granted. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all promised the land of Canaan uh, or Israel, own none of it, and have to beg or pay to bury their dead, to pitch their tent or draw water from wells they themselves have dug. Israel is the people whose achievements are transparently God-given. What for others is natural for Israel is a result of divine intervention. Israel must be weak if it is to be strong. For its strength must come from heaven so they can never say, my power and the strength of my hands have achieved this wealth for me. It's from Deuteronomy 8. It is Ishmael's natural strength that disqualifies him. And yet, Ishmael is not vilified. 
It, this narrative asserts that the hierarchy of the ancient world, where the elder is destined to rule, the younger to serve, is about to be overthrown. The counter-narrative is more radical still because it hints at the most radical of monotheism's truths, that God may choose, but God does not reject. The logic of scarcity of alpha males and chosen sons has no place in a world made by a God whose tender mercies are on all his works, from Psalm 145. God may choose, but that doesn't mean God rejects, right? That's, that's our scarcity mindset that says, well, if God is favoring this group or this person, then that must mean he hates this other group and wants nothing to do with them. Even though Genesis is a story of the promise, it's going to great lengths to show the ways in which God is still blessing those who are not part of this, this one particular family. God has enough blessing to go around. And if we could acknowledge that, we probably wouldn't be so uh, violent and so willing to, to, to try and hold on to God and claim God as belonging only to us. God is too big to let that happen. And the sooner we learn that, uh, the better humanity is going to be. So now we turn to a big shift in, in uh, Genesis to the story of Jacob and Esau. These are going to be Isaac's children. And, you know, Jacob, you think about what kind of person he is. Um, not a lot of good things come to mind immediately if you know some of these stories we're going to look at, right? He's deceitful. Um, he goes behind people's backs. He, he's always tricking others. And so we have to think again, right, is he a positive role model, is he a negative example, or is it something else? And so this is a, as we go into this story of Jacob, it's a place to remind us that we're not looking at these people to see here's who, what, you should, what you should be like. It's to see this is who God works through, so what does that say about God? It's a, it's a theological focus, not just a moralistic, be like this person kind of focus. So you pick up in chapter 25, verse 19, with this story. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is the way it's to be, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When it was time to give birth, uh, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, uh, his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore him. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you can probably think if you have any siblings of some of you, the fights you got into with them and how early those started and, and the silly things that they were about. But I don't know, I, I haven't heard too many stories about fighting in the womb. Uh, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good start there for them. Now, Rebecca, it just mentions very briefly that she also struggled with um, infertility, but it's very quickly resolved, right? She can't have children, Isaac prays, and then she can. Um, it's probably just here to connect to the previous story. Again, see that the children are a blessing from God. It doesn't just happen. And so as she's, you know, <laughs> they're fighting in her womb, and she's like, what is going on in here? She goes to get an answer from the Lord. 
And so we get this strange uh, word from God in, in 23, verse 23. Uh, probably the best word for it is an oracle, because that's, that's the term that you use for something that's, that's kind of vague. Because the Hebrew here is, is way more ambiguous than it appears in most English translations. Uh, and the main part that we're talking about is the very last line, which in this translation that I read says, the elder shall serve the younger. Well, the reason that's ambiguous is for one thing, in Hebrew, there's usually a, a word that indicates which, which word is the object, right? Who's doing the action, and then who is the, the subject. Or I guess, sorry, the subject is who's doing the ab- action, object is who's being acted on. So we're missing that marker there. And even just the way it's written, it could be saying the older shall the younger serve. So it's not actually that clear who's serving who. It's just saying that one of them is going to serve the other. And I know most of the story is about Jacob kind of one-upping his brother Esau. But if you go to the very end of their story in chapter 33, Jacob is actually bowing down to Esau right, as part of their reconciliation that we'll get to later on. So again, even in the story, it's, it's not quite clear. But what we're seeing here is, is what we just talked about with Ishmael is that God does not choose the naturally strong. He doesn't always, he's not going with the firstborn like they would expect. And so you think about here Esau and Jacob's roles, what kind of characters they are. Esau is technically firstborn, even though it's just by a, by a hair. Um, just like Abel, just like Ishmael, right? that's, that's not a good sign in Genesis. Firstborns actually don't fare very well. And Esau has natural strength. He's traditionally manly. Right? He's very hairy. He's a hunter. That's who dad likes the best. And then you have Jacob, who's more of a homebody and kind of a mama's boy. You know, uh, the best example I thought of recently is if you've seen any of the, the Marvel films, it's like Thor and Loki, right? Esau is like Thor. He's, he's big and strong and he's a fighter. Uh, and so that's who's, you know, expected to rule. And then you have Loki, who is, uh, you know, doesn't have that kind of natural strength, and he gets by on deception, and he's closer with his mom. That's that's probably the best analogy for Jacob and Esau and and their relationship with each other. Jacob's name, you know, it kind of mentions that there. They named him because he's holding onto his brother's heel. Uh, the word kind of sounds like heel grabber, which is a figurative term that means like deceiver, or in our language, it'd be like backstabber. And so we're seeing here, even literally in the way they're born. The root problem is that Jacob wants to be Esau. He wants to be his brother. And along with that, there's this favoritism of which parent likes the which one, which child best. Right? That's also a continual problem through Genesis, and we're going to see how that happens. But as we've talked about, God does not play favorites, even if God does choose one to carry the covenant blessing. You know, we often assume that people who have natural gifts are favored by God. And sometimes it's true that, that God does gift people with, with abilities that can bless the world. But I think it's, it's so easy or, or so tempting for us to think, well, if this person can do all this, uh, then it must be God that's behind it. Right? And, and we tend to only see the flashy things, the things that we noticed, people that can earn a lot of money or that can rise uh, you know, up high in their companies or in their business. I'm not going to say that's not God, but uh, what we see most often in, in here in Genesis and what we see modeled in Jesus is that God actually seems to focus on those who don't have as much. You know, as, uh, as we heard in that book just a minute ago, as we hear in Paul say in 2 Corinthians, 
Uh, 1 Corinthians, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. And so that, that story goes all the way back to Genesis. That is what God does then and now. So let's move on and see uh, how Esau and Jacob interact with each other with our last story today. Picking up in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff for I'm famished. Therefore, he was called Edom, which, which means red. Jacob said, well, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, well, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. So this idea of a birthright probably is the greater inheritance that would go to a firstborn. Uh, you go over to Deuteronomy, and it talks about this being a, a double portion or the firstborn getting two-thirds of the inheritance. So this is just what's common to every firstborn male in their culture. This is separate from the blessing, the unique covenant promise that came from Abraham to Isaac and then will go to Jacob. Uh, next time, we'll see Jacob steal that. But the question is, uh, what do you think? Who is at fault here? Um, are you on team Jacob? Uh, you think Esau's kind of dumb and he got what's coming to him? I mean, you, it kind of seems like at the end of the narrator is judging Esau for, for not thinking more highly of his birthright, for not really caring about that. But at the same time, what kind of brother denies food to a, a starving sibling? But then on the other hand, well, was he really starving or is he just really hungry? And I don't know, we all have made bad decisions out of hunger. So <laughs> you just it's not clear which is, is the good guy or the bad guy. It's, these are the ways that, that siblings um, and humanity can mistreat each other and take advantage of each other. And so, you know, I don't know, I would assume that Rebecca had interpreted God's word to her in a particular way to mean that Jacob is supposed to be superior, and he probably had heard that from her. And so we have to think about the danger of, of believing that we are chosen by God no matter what we do, because it's important to know that, that God is with us, but there's a way in which that can quickly turn into, well, I can just do whatever I want because God's with me, or, well, God wants me to have this, so how I get it doesn't really matter. You know, those questions are actually really important. Um, if God is blessing us, it can't be at the expense of other people. That's so much of human history using God in that way. But what we see even here is that that is not the way that God blesses. God is not limited. God may choose, but God doesn't have to reject everybody else. And so we should never think that people who aren't like us, who don't have what we have, that, that God doesn't care about them anymore. But to see that everyone is still blessed by God and loved by God, and to do what we can to make sure that we are spreading that blessing and not just keeping it for ourselves. Well, thanks for joining today. We'll pick up next time with more of the drama between Jacob and Esau. We'll see you then.